Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, February 13th, 2024, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner. Here's a look at today's top stories. Trump says the U.S. shouldn't protect NATO allies who don't pay. Israel rescues two hostages held in Gaza. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is hospitalized again. Alexander Stubb wins Finland's presidential election. A report contradicts Washington's account of the dismissal of Ukraine's top general. Indian police block roads as farmers advance on New Delhi. France rescinds birthright citizenship for Mayotte. Hungary's president resigns over a sex abuser pardon. The marathon world record holder is killed in a crash. The Biden campaign joins TikTok. And a new prosthetic hand enables amputees to sense temperature. Our top story, Trump says he'd encourage Russia to attack NATO allies who don't pay. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Guardian, CNN, Politico, NATO, and BBC News. Speaking at a campaign rally in South Carolina on Saturday, former President Donald Trump said he would encourage Russia to do, quote, whatever the hell it wants to NATO members that didn't meet their financial obligations to the military alliance. Trump claimed that, during an unspecified meeting of leaders of NATO countries, he told one of the presidents of a big country that the U.S. wouldn't defend an ally from a potential Russian invasion if they don't pay their bills. U.S. President Joe Biden condemned what he called appalling and dangerous statements by the former president, suggesting that his predecessor wanted to give Russian President Vladimir Putin a green light for more war and violence. Meanwhile, Polish Deputy Foreign Minister Powell Zaluski said that as a serious candidate for president, Trump's words should be taken seriously as they indicate a change to the logic of the U.S. presence in NATO. According to NATO's collective defense clause, an attack against an ally is considered an attack against all allies, and member countries must take necessary actions to assist and protect any ally that is attacked. NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg warned that Trump's comments undermined the Western military alliance's security and exposed American and European troops to greater risk. According to current NATO figures, 19 of its 30 member states, including Germany, Norway, and France, spend less than the 2% target of their annual GDP on defense. Thanks, Scott. The spins have been separated from the facts, and our first one is an anti-Trump narrative coming from Financial Times. It's utterly incomprehensible that Donald Trump, a likely Republican presidential nominee, is calling for wars, promoting chaos, and suggesting the U.S. wouldn't defend NATO allies from invaders if he's reelected. While the former president's words are a reminder of the divisive rhetoric fueling his campaign and an attempt to distract his followers from his criminal trials, his comments indicate a second Trump presidency could jeopardize U.S. commitment to the transatlantic alliance. Breitbart counters with a pro-Trump narrative. Support for NATO is overly burdensome on the U.S. Washington is paying more than its fair share, thereby draining its financial and military resources. It's also an excessive financial burden to guarantee the defense of 30 nations that are behind on their payments. Moreover, the U.S. has provided Ukraine, a non-NATO member, with more financial support than any other country. It's time the U.S. reevaluates the military alliance's membership and pulls out if the bloc isn't meeting its purpose. The nerds from Metaculus say there's a 50% chance that Donald Trump will be elected U.S. president in 2024. 
I, uh, did you catch any of the uh, Vladimir Putin interview with Tucker? I did not. I, didn't. I was uh, sick the past couple days, so I, I actually had the time to sit down for the or lay down for the two hours and listen to it. Let's so, get your take on it. I thought Putin came off good. I mean, he yeah. was speaking through a translator. So, there's you know, there's something lost. I'm sure it was a good translator, though. Right, right. Um, and I know he came off good. I mean, he did a lot of kind of backstory and history lessening. Right. Um, but I, I don't know. I, to, I, to try I, to support his point or what? Yeah, Just, like yeah. to explain why because you know the, the first question Tucker asked is well, you know the one we all want to know why did you attack Ukraine yeah. and his justification was couched a lot in stuff that happened in the year 800 or the year 1200 oh, or something gotcha. um, which you know that's that it, it's easy for us as Americans to kind of have a, a, a myopic view of history because we're only a couple hundred years old right but, you know if if your country goes back to the you know to the the 800s or something, then maybe that has more, a little more relevant. You know, it for carries. us, it kind of seems like it. everything reset in uh, 1776. Right, a bit. right, right. Yeah. So, they get, I don't uh, know. Yeah. He can't I mean, I'm, I'm far from a uh, 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 Putin uh, cheerleader, but I don't know. He came off pretty good. If you were going to sit with someone for two hours and have him explain what happened in the year 942, then you could do a lot worse than than Putin. He's at least knows what he's talking about. And the latest from the war in Gaza, Israel says that two hostages have been freed and over 70 Palestinians have been killed. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, CBS, CNN, Axios, Politico and Euronews. The Israeli military announced on Monday that it had freed two hostages being held in Rafah on the Gazan side of the Egyptian border in a rescue operation, with the Israeli prime minister citing the assault as evidence that Israeli's campaign in Gaza should continue. The assault into the city reportedly killed at least 70 Palestinians. Israel says many of the dead were militants, while Gaza claims 70% were civilians. The operation included a heavy barrage of airstrikes, which were pointed to as the cause of the casualties. The military said that the hostages were being held in an apartment building guarded by Hamas gunmen. Israel now believes that around 30 of the over 100 hostages remaining in Gaza are dead. Israeli officials, including the prime minister, have indicated recently that Israel will soon send troops into Rafah, which is currently housing upwards of 1.3 million displaced Palestinians, over half of the Strip's population. A UN official described Rafah and its tent camps as a, quote, pressure cooker of despair. Axios reported that U.S. President Joe Biden told Netanyahu during a Sunday phone call that Israel should not enter Rafah without planning for the evacuation of Palestinian civilians in the area stressing that U.S. support for such an assault was conditional. Netanyahu last week ordered the military to submit a plan for evacuating Rafah's civilian population. Additionally, the possibility of an Israeli advance into Rafah has created tension with regional countries, namely Egypt. Egyptian and Western officials have recently indicated that invading Rafah would threaten Egypt's peace treaty with Israel and risk closing Gaza's main supply route for aid delivery. Gaza's health ministry reports that the conflict has killed over 28,000 people in the Gaza Strip, the majority of whom were women and children. The war has also created a rapidly deteriorating humanitarian situation. The official Israeli death toll on October 7th stands at around 1,200 people. Thanks, Eric. We have a pro-establishment spin from Voice of America. Israel's war against Hamas is just, given the atrocities the group committed during its October 7th attack. 
However, Israel must take into account the innocent civilians in Gaza who are trapped between Israel's military machine and Hamas's terrorist fighters. Israel has not yet created acceptable conditions to move into Rafah, and it must have a concrete plan to evacuate civilians from any areas in which it will operate. The pro-Israel narrative comes from the Jerusalem Post. Though this has been a tragic war, Israel must eliminate Hamas once and for all to ensure Israel's security. To eradicate its capacity for terror, Israel has been forced to use blunt tools to rout Hamas forces, as they are so deeply dug into Gaza's civil infrastructure. Indeed, this recent rescue operation in Rafah proves that Israel's tactics are bearing fruit. Israel has worked hard to compromise and ensure the safety of civilians, but it will have to go into Rafah if an agreement is not reached soon. Al Jazeera supports a pro-Palestine narrative. Israel continues to demonstrate that its war is not against Hamas, but against the Palestinian people as a whole. The humanitarian situation in Gaza is already far beyond catastrophic, as over one million Palestinians barely survive in dense and muddy tent camps while battling famine and disease. If Israel were to push into Rafah as it did Gaza City and Khan Yunis, the consequences would be absolutely dire. The Metaculous Prediction community has a nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 6% chance that Hamas will have de facto power in the Gaza Strip on January 1st, 2025. Defense Secretary Austin is hospitalized again. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS News, BBC News, France 24, CNN, and The Guardian. Early Sunday night, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was brought to Walter Reed National Military Medical Center with an emergent bladder issue. Austin delegated his responsibilities to Kathleen Hicks, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, while he is hospitalized. Austin, 70, was diagnosed with prostate cancer earlier in December and underwent surgery December 22nd. Due to complications from the procedure, Austin went back into the hospital on New Year's Day and remained there for two weeks. In a statement, the Pentagon said Austin was hospitalized for supportive care and close monitoring. After testing, Austin's doctor said his current situation would not affect his anticipated full recovery and his cancer prognosis remains excellent. The public was notified approximately two hours after Austin was admitted to the hospital. Previously, he drew criticism for waiting days following his hospitalization before telling President Joe Biden. Austin was set to travel to Brussels on Tuesday to meet with the Ukraine Defense Contact Group to coordinate military support for Ukraine. However, a defense official confirmed Monday that the meeting will be held virtually. Scott, thank you for presenting the facts. The first spin is a Republican narrative coming from Daily Wire. This is becoming an unnecessary roller coaster at a time when the U.S. needs stability amid a tumultuous world. Austin should have resigned over his dereliction of duty when he didn't disclose his hospitalization to the president. Just because he was more transparent this time around doesn't mean he can be relied upon during sensitive times. The Washington Post brings us a Democratic narrative. Austin admitted his previous lack of transparency about his hospitalization was a lapse in judgment. So this time he informed the proper people about his medical issues. The chain of command, which was not breached during his first medical absence, exists for a reason, and it's serving its purpose this time around to make sure the U.S. is always secure. Alexander Stubb wins Finland's presidential election. The facts are all agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, BBC News, Politico, Guardian and Associated Press. Former Prime Minister and National Coalition Party leader Alexander Stubb won the Finnish presidential election runoff on Sunday, securing 51.6% of the votes against Green Party rival Pekka Havisto's 48.4%. 
Stubb had won the first round of the presidential election on January 28th, receiving 27.2 of the popular vote, while independent candidate Javisto came in a close second with 25.8% of the ballot. The 55-year-old 13th president of Finland, responsible for the country's security and foreign policy, called Sunday's victory, quote, the greatest honor of his life. Stubb was sworn in as prime minister in 2014. However, he lost a parliamentary election in 2015. He was appointed the finance minister in the new government, but he reportedly quit Finnish politics in 2017 with the intent to never return. Stubb had stated that Russia's invasion of Ukraine and his desire to support Finland's efforts to oppose the Kremlin were the driving forces behind his campaign. However, after his win, he said, quote, one of the president's main tasks is to ensure Finland promotes peace. Stubb will succeed outgoing incumbent Sally Ninista, who oversaw Finland's accession to NATO in April 2023. Ninista's second year term expires in March, and he isn't eligible for re-election. Thanks, Eric. The New York Times brings us a pro-establishment narrative. With a pro-European stub at the helm, Finland can safely take a hard line on Russia, as well as play a robust military role within NATO. Since he seeks to be a unifying factor for the country and assumes the roles of prime minister, foreign minister, and defense minister in the government, his victory marks a new era in Finland, which has so far elected presidents to foster diplomacy and avoid tensions within and outside its boundaries. Bloomberg has an establishment critical narrative. It says, Stubb wants to allow the transport of nuclear weapons across Finland and station NATO troops permanently in the country. For him, the line between war and peace has been blurred and nuclear weapons guarantee stability. Amid Europe's current security environment, unless Stubb takes a non-confrontational and more cautious approach with the Kremlin, maintains Finland's nuclear weapons ban, and remains as calm and contemplative as his predecessor, Helsinki is in geostrategic trouble. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 50% chance that NATO will have at least 32 members on December 31st, 2025. A report contradicts the U.S. account of the top Ukrainian general's dismissal. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Times, Ukranska Pravda, and BBC News. A report published in The Times of London into the sacking of Ukrainian General Valery Zelushny has contradicted the version of events provided by the White House last week. Following the dismissal of Zelushny, who was replaced by Alexander Sirsky, National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said the decision was down to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Kirby said he gets to decide who his leadership is going to be in the military. However, shortly after those comments, the Times reported that once rumors of Zelushny's possible firing started to emerge on January 29th, Rustam Umorov, the country's defense minister, was asked to meet with two U.S. officials the U.S. Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, and Bridget Brink, the U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine in Kyiv on January 31st. Newland was reportedly unhappy to see Zeluzhny go and offered to smooth over misunderstandings, according to the Times report, contradicting the White House position that it did not interfere in Zelensky's decision-making. While the White House has not commented on the report, Newland was famously involved in another case where she and other U.S. officials appeared to be interfering in Ukrainian politics in February 2014. Audio from a phone call that was published online showed Newland to be promoting the idea of a Rizny Yatsenyuk as leader. He was appointed as prime minister a few weeks later. Thank you, Scott, for the facts. The pro-establishment narrative is our first spin, and it comes from the official website of the White House. Zelensky is the sovereign leader of Ukraine. It is purely for him to decide who the military leadership of his country should be, and the U.S. will continue to work closely with whomever he decides to appoint to protect Ukrainian sovereignty. 
and the establishment critical narrative from the Times of London. As this report demonstrates, the U.S. clearly interfered in Ukraine's decision-making process. Newland met with the Ukrainian defense minister in the hope of keeping America's preferred candidate in place. The U.S. needs to stop trying to undermine Ukraine's sovereignty. The nerds from Metaculus say there's a 68% chance that Volodymyr Zelensky will be re-elected president in the next Ukrainian elections. Indian police block roads ahead of a farmer's march to New Delhi. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, NDTV, Independent, Bloomberg, and First Post. Indian police have erected cement blocks and laid barbed wire fences along the edges of New Delhi as farmers march towards the capital city. This is similar to demonstrations from almost four years ago. The police have also planted nails, parking cranes, excavators, and containers on many roads leading to the city, with up to 5,000 security personnel also reportedly deployed at entry points. Up to 20,000 farmers from the neighboring Haryana and Uttar Pradesh states plan to join the march into Delhi on Tuesday to protest against a lack of minimum price from the government for their produce, a government promise made in 2021 that has yet to deliver on. Delhi has been on high alert for 30 days, with gatherings of over four people, as well as loudspeakers and, quote, verbal, written, or electronic speech that violates public order barred. In 2021, Prime Minister Narendra Modi's government was forced to repeal three new farm laws that were perceived as anti-farmer after tens of thousands staged a year-long protest on Delhi's outskirts. This follows similar protests from farmers in European nations like France, Germany, and Belgium, who demonstrated against rising debt and cheaper imports, as well as other factors. All right, thanks, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative from India today. Farmers are well within their rights to protest peacefully to air their grievances. However, other ordinary citizens also have a right to travel and arrive at destinations with minimal hurdles. As was ruled on by the court three years ago, the right to protest cannot overshadow the latter. The protesters, therefore, cannot be allowed to block roads, especially the ones leading to the national capital. The establishment critical narrative comes from Op India. While the government may try to stop individual gatherings, as they did during the last protest, Indian farmers from across the country will be out in force until the government finally decides to fulfill its promises. The people who put food on Indian tables want to be treated with respect, which is why they're demanding sovereignty over their farmland, government debt relief, and livable wage increases. And the nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 50% chance that India will score at least 6.3 in the Democracy Index in 2030. You know, these Indian farmers, they could, uh, you know, kill two birds with one stone here. If they offered hay rides to the capital, <laughs> France will rescind birthright citizenship for Mayotte. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by France's Ministry of the Interior, France 24, Radio Free International, Le Monde, and Gerald Darmanin's X-Page. French Minister of the Interior, Gerard Darmanin, has announced the radical decision to remove birthplace French citizenship from the island of Mayotte. The policy is intended to remove the attractiveness of further immigration to the Indian Ocean Territory. Darmanin revealed the policy while visiting Mayotte alongside Minister Delegate for Overseas, Marie Gouverneau, as part of a wider response to self-described security, water, and migration crises on the island. On X, formerly known as Twitter, Darmanin claimed that exceptional situations required exceptional measures. While further announcing a restriction on family reunifications, the end of territorialized visas, and the drastic restriction of residence permits in Mayotte, Mayotte saw its population increase by over 400% between 1985 to 2017, and almost 47% of children born on the island in 2021 
had two parents who were not French. The island voted to remain part of France in 1973 and became a French department in 2011. The territory is the poorest French region, with France's National Institute of Statistics and Economic Studies estimating over 40% to live on less than 160 euros per month. That's about 173 American dollars. The news comes as France passed a new immigration bill in December 2023, tightening immigration policy with some stipulations of the legislation, including the introduction of immigration quotas being annulled by France's Constitutional Council. Thanks, Scott, for the facts. The first spin is a left narrative coming from Al Mayadeen. With the vast majority of Mayotte's population being Muslim, often reaching the territory from neighboring islands in search of a better life, the decision to restrict eligibility for French citizenship is a glimpse into the country's rampant Islamophobia. Mayotte's stark reality is representative of France's history of racism and colonialism, as the French state continues to make political decisions aimed at undermining its Muslim populations. And a right narrative from Le Figaro. Mayotte has been failed by France and the island has consequently experienced an avalanche of immigration that far exceeds a sustainable reality. Mayotte's continued stream of migrants continues to instigate crisis after crisis. And so far, the state has done little to protect its French citizens. Those who enter Mayotte to take advantage of the French system must be swiftly addressed, or else it will be not long before they set foot on European shores. The nerds from Metaculus say there's a 5% chance that France will be the first country to administer more territory off Earth than on it. Moving on to Hungary as their president resigns over a sex abuse pardon scandal. The facts are agreed upon by BBC News, NDTV, CNN, Al Jazeera, Politico and Reuters. Hungarian President Katalin Novak announced her resignation in a televised address on Sunday amid public outrage over a pardon she granted to a man convicted in a sexual abuse case at a state-run children's home. Novak, the first female president of Hungary, acknowledged that she had, quote, made a mistake and issued an apology stating, quote, the pardon granted and the lack of explanation may have given rise to doubts about zero tolerance of pedophilia. A former family minister, Novak, also apologized to all the victims who, quote, might have felt that I did not stand up for them adding that she had always, quote, consistently advocated for the protection of children and families. As part of Pope Francis's visit to Hungary in April 2023, Novak had pardoned at least two dozen people, including Andre K., the deputy director of a children's home sentenced in 2022 to three years and four months in prison for covering up for his director's crimes. However, opposition parties' demands for her resignation grew only after her presidential pardon was reported, by a local news website last week. On Friday, at least 1,000 people protested in Budapest, calling for Novak to step down. Meanwhile, soon after Novak's resignation, Judith Varga, the justice minister at the time of the pardon, quit as a lawmaker and announced she was withdrawing from public life over the scandal. Thanks, Eric. The New York Times brings us Narrative A. Novak is an outspoken champion of family values and would never pardon crimes committed against children. However, it's clear she made a mistake in freeing a pedophile in the belief that the convict didn't abuse the vulnerability of children entrusted to him. President must be applauded for making a responsible decision. France 24 has narrative B. Even if Novak's role was essentially ceremonial, she could have been vigilant before granting a pardon to a man implicated in a child's sexual abuse case. However, it's evident that the close ally of Hungary's authoritarian prime minister, Viktor Orban, is made a scapegoat to calm national anger. No important decisions are taken in the country without the conservative leader's approval. 
and another nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 4% chance that Hungary will experience a successful coup d'etat before 2040. Kelvin Kiptum, the marathon world record holder, dies at age 24. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ITV, WorldAthletics.org, the Associated Press, and BBC News. Kelvin Kiptum, the marathon world record holder from Kenya, died in a car crash on Sunday. He was 24 years old. Set to be a top contender for the gold medal at the Paris Olympics this summer, the up-and-coming star died alongside his Rwandan coach, Gervais Hakizamana. Kenyan police said the crash took place at around 11 p.m. local time after Kiptum, who was driving, veered off the road into a ditch before proceeding to hit a tree. A 24-year-old woman was also in the car and taken to a hospital with serious injuries. The crash took place near the towns of Eldoret and Koptegat in western Kenya, home to a preeminent training base for long-distance runners from Kenya and around the globe. Kiptum was born in Shepkorio roughly 19 miles or 30 kilometers from Eldoret in the Rift Valley. After working on his family's cattle farm, he began to follow marathon runners on the local trails at the age of 13. Five years later, at 18, he won the Eldoret Half Marathon. In 2022, he started competing in the longer distance category and turning heads, winning the Valencia Marathon with the third fastest time ever recorded for the distance. In 2023, he won the London Marathon with a course record before beating the world record time at the Chicago Marathon. Those were the facts, and the first spin for this story is Narrative A coming from CNN. This is a shocking tragedy. Not only was Kiptum a once-in-a-generation athlete, but he was also a magnificent friend, family member, and human being. He will be sorely missed by all those who knew him. Narrative B from Associated Press. While this is no doubt a tragedy of a soon-to-be superstar, Kenya has unfortunately grown accustomed to these types of horrific accidents. A number of its top athletes have died in similar circumstances in recent years. The nerds from Metaculus say there's a 75% chance that the U.S. will lead the medal table at the Paris 2024 Summer Olympics. The Biden campaign joins TikTok. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, The Wall Street Journal, BBC News, and Fox News. U.S. President Joe Biden's 2024 re-election campaign has begun using the social media app TikTok, with campaign staff operating the account as they do with other social media apps. The account, which currently has over 45,000 followers, posted its first video during the Super Bowl on Sunday. The 26-second clip, which held the caption, quote, LOL, hey guys, and showed Biden answering questions about the game, has been viewed over 4 million times. This decision follows the Biden administration's 2022 ban on the app on all federal devices, as well as similar bans in several states. The government bans were due to security concerns regarding TikTok's China-based parent company ByteDance. Previously, the Democratic president's campaign has attempted to reach younger voters by teaming up with TikTok influencers to advocate for his re-election run. The Democratic National Committee has also started using the app. Although Biden and the Democratic Party have done well with younger voters in elections while abstaining from TikTok, a survey last year showed that 20% of Gen Z Americans received their political news from the platform. Thanks, Eric. Unsurprisingly, we have some politically divergent narratives on this story, starting with the Democratic narrative from The Washington Post. The Biden campaign is going where it can reach the young voters it needs to re-elect the president. TikTok has previously proven informative for young voters on the Ukraine war and COVID. So as long as the social media accounts are protected from hackers, this is a great idea. We follow that with a Republican narrative coming from the blaze. In a desperate attempt to make up ground on former President Trump in the election, 
The president has decided to violate the ban on a Chinese spy app to reach young voters. If the security risk wasn't bad enough, he looked older than his advanced age in his kickoff video. This move is so problematic for this lame duck administration. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 50% chance that Biden will have a net approval rating of at least negative 11 by November 1st, 2024. Our final story, a new prosthetic hand lets an amputee sense temperature. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Smithsonian Magazine, The Journal Med, Medical Express, New Scientist, Good News Network, and The Guardian. Scientists have developed a functional artificial limb with fingertip sensors that can deliver realistic thermal information to an amputee's residual limb, which the brain interprets as being still attached to the original hand. Following the recent discovery of phantom thermal sensations in amputees, scientists integrated a standalone system into a robotic prosthetic hand to allow it to feel and respond to hot and cold temperatures. According to a study published last week in the journal Med, the mini touch device, which allowed a 57-year-old transradial amputee to distinguish objects of different temperatures manually, can be easily integrated with commercially available prosthetic limbs without surgery. In an experiment, the study participant reportedly could identify hot, cold, or ambient bottles with total accuracy with his modified prosthetic. However, his accuracy dropped to a third when the device's thermal sensor was turned off. Professor Silvestro Macera said that the scientists are really close to restoring the full palette of sensations to amputees. The team next aims to allow amputees to feel sensations from multiple points, not just the index finger as in its current version. He added that the big next step is to create a single wearable system to enable amputees to experience pressure, texture, position, temperature, and wetness. Thank you, Scott. The first spin is Narrative A coming from El Savier. With one of the last century frontiers of bionic limbs, temperature, now within sight, amputees are a step closer to living a fuller life. It gives individuals who have suffered dismemberment a stronger, quote, this hand is mine sense. This is taking it closer to its full potential, especially when added dexterity of the prosthetic is factored in. Once the safety requirements are met, a whole new life will open up for amputees. And the National Center for Biotechnology Information brings us Narrative B. While the past decade's growth and innovations in the field of prosthetics have been phenomenal, the evolution also calls for a bird's-eye view of where this medical technology is headed. A critical analysis at this stage will help the field in its next steps to master and integrate these innovations. It's vital to build a solid framework in the medical industry to help these medical inventions reach their full promise. The nerds from Metaculus say there's a 50% chance that the first medical treatment based on nanorobots will happen by October of 2033. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, February 13th, 2024. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at verity.news and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. 